I was able to tap into this whole um, discussion in the mainstream media that hadn't really been documented yet about um, same-sex desire um, through arrest records. Through the arrest records, I was able to get individual names. Um, I got over a thousand court cases published in the newspapers, right? It was a lot more than the initial sodomy statistics had um, in the parliamentary papers, because once you tap into the things that are just handled at the police court level and that don't make it higher, then you can find all sorts of names and details that were recorded in the paper. And it just felt like that this is the story that hasn't been told yet. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to the Ivory Tower Boiler Room. I am really excited because not only am I continuing these queer history discussions. Uh, we just had Dominic Jaynes on the podcast. So I thought, okay, who can I get in the 19th century, which as everyone who listens is the century that I love to write about and I work on in academics. When I'm not doing the podcast, I'm looking at Wilde and Whitman and queer Victorian, queer American culture. So I am good friends. I would, yes, we're good friends. Good friends. He's a mentor of mine. Um, I've loved every time I've chatted with him. I am here with, I'm going to say his formal name, which is Charles Upchurch. But, you know, as you all listen in the audience, maybe he'll let you call uh, him Chuck. But we are here in February. It is Valentine's themed in a way. We'll get into how is uh, sodomy, the death penalty related to Valentine's. But Chuck has a way around this. Um, so I just want to introduce him. He is an associate professor of British history at Florida State University. And he is the author of, before the book we're talking about today, he wrote one that I am such a fan of. It is called Before Wild, Sex Between Men in Britain's Age of, Re of Reform. So it's a wonderful uh, history. But we are here to talk about, quote, beyond the law, and I'm going to get into why is this quoted with him, the politics of ending the death penalty for sodomy in Britain. Okay, so welcome, Chuck, to the Ivory Tower Boiler Room. Oh, thanks so much, Andrew. I'm really looking forward to the conversation. I really appreciate you letting me come here and sharing my new work with your audience. Of course. And I think right away, we're in February. Uh, it's this Valentine's-themed atmosphere um love is in the air um you know what would we as readers be surprised about regarding just first how your whole argument about the politics behind trying to end the death penalty in england in britain um uh against sodomy that this was not something that just happened right away at the end of the you know trying to argue to end it in the end of the 19th century. This was a long fight. And I love that you air all of this history. So yeah, is there anything romantic in this uh, narrative for you, Chuck? Um, definitely there is a romance story at the heart of this, right? Because um, the two individuals in parliament that are spearheading the effort that is almost successful in ending the death penalty for sodomy in 1841, um, their families are actually linked by a couple. Um, one of them um, is a Tory, brand new member of parliament. Um, his name is Fitzroy Kelly. And his brother, William Kelly, is someone that 
um, really literary scholars have been talking about since the 1930s as the absorbing passion of uh, Matthew Gregory Lewis, right? Mm -hmm. uh, Matthew Gregory Lewis, the Gothic novelist, who is um, the author of The Monk, right? And um, was known at the time, um, you know, for his attractions to men, um, lots of little innuendo statements sort of um, in the period, and literary scholars have been sort of debating this ever since. Um, mm -hmm. So um, Fitzroy Kelly and his brother are linked to Matthew Gregory Lewis, Matthew Gregory Lewis's sister is married to the other co-sponsor of the of the bill, right? Stephen Lushington, the abolitionist. Um, and Stephen Lushington actually is the person who, as a younger man, was the um, person who provided legal representation for Lady Byron when she was separating from Lord Byron. And um, he was the one who really everyone who's looked at that story is credit credits him with being the person who um, encouraged her to say that Byron had committed sodomy on her, threatened to reveal that publicly so that she would get to keep custody of her infant daughter, right, Ada, so that he is already kind of publicly associated with sodomy, but he also has this family connection. It's this really crazy interconnected story at the heart of it. But, but this couple, right? Matthew Gregory Lewis and William Kelly. Um, their relationship is recorded in multiple letters. Um, their mothers were friends with each other. There's this really interesting kind of network. And that's really kind of at the heart of the um, of the political effort that uh, we see playing out in 1840 and 1841. So um, so yeah, there is definitely a love story at the heart of it, although it took me a long time to actually find that aspect of the story, right, because um, if I could launch into maybe just a little bit about the historical intervention, right, and how yes, I sort of got, please, please. Mm -hmm. got into this. All right, great. It's because um, originally I had no idea that this was kind of going on, right, because um, most people thought that there really wasn't much of a story to tell before the late 19th century, certainly not a political story, right? Because it's before the classic start of what we would think of as, you know, um, modern gay identity in the late 19th century, right? And I'm not trying to overturn that narrative at all, but I do think um, following on the work of Anna Clark, right, who has done absolutely brilliant work in alternative histories of the self, she's giving us ways to think about how you can think about you know, identity and same-sex desire before the late 19th century and still be sort of true to the historical sources, right? What we have to do is find the texts and find the ways that they constructed identity in earlier periods, not project modern identities back in time. So, um, so um, anyway, there was really, many people thought, not that much of a story to tell early on. But by picking up on leads that I had uncovered in my first book, things that I thought, oh yeah, this looks really interesting, but it's probably gonna to be too big for the first book. The first book's almost done. I'm gonna save this for an article. And I had sort of like three of these things in the early 19th century um, that I was gonna come back to and turn into articles. And as I started digging into them after Before Wild came out, I realized this isn't just a article and these aren't three separate things. This is all one big, one big story that hadn't really been told yet. Yeah, no, thank you for laying all of that. Oh, I mean, we'll get more into definitely the link that happened from your first book before a while to this. But I do have to ask, Chuck, because you're, you know, jogging my 19th century curiosity, which is I work a lot on John Addington Simmons, early sexologist, um, 
Havelock Ellis, Edward Carpenter. I love reading their analyses and especially because Simmons writes about Whitman. And I argue that it's the first case study of a queer reading of Whitman, like a queer literary theory that comes out from sexology. So it's very interesting to me. But I love what you're saying here about uh, thinking in terms of before that moment in the sense of um, there is such a sexual history and you're letting the archive, you're letting the testaments speak for themselves. And that's so powerful that I'm curious why even in your first work before Wild, literally, we're moving before the late Victorian period, why were you always drawn or what is drawing you to moving before sexology, before a gay identity? Like why you're not doing, say, 20th century gay history or queer history? What is it for you that just it speaks to you to move before? Right. Well, when I first started this way back in the late 1990s as a graduate student, um, there was a sort of a cluster of work on the 18th century and there was the cluster of work in the late 19th century forward. And it always just seemed to me that there has to be more of a story to tell in that period in between. Um, I got this idea about the same time as Harry Cox did, right? And Harry also wrote a wonderful book, Nameless Offenses, which also kind of covers that period. Although, you know, Harry's book does focus a little bit more um, on the, the center of gravity is a little bit more on the second half of the 19th century, but he does tell some really good stories and provide some excellent analysis of the period earlier. Um, and so I kind of shifted my project once Harry's book came out and really doubled down on the newspapers because I was able to tap into this whole um, discussion in the mainstream media that hadn't really been documented yet about um, same-sex desire um, through arrest records. Through the arrest records, I was able to get individual names. Um, I got over a thousand court cases published in the newspapers, right? It was a lot more than the initial sodomy statistics had um, in the parliamentary papers, because once you tap into the things that are just handled at the police court level and that don't make it higher, then you can find all sorts of names and details that were recorded in the paper. And it just felt like that this is the story that hasn't been told yet. Hi, this is Andrew, and I'm interrupting what I know is an enthralling interview because I want you all to know that we are sponsored by Broadview Press. And if you don't know, Broadview Press is an independent academic publisher who publishes books covering topics like English studies, writing, philosophy, history, gender studies. And every season on the podcast, I interview one of the Broadview Press authors. So for the fall, we had Ann Stevens on to talk about literary theory and criticism. She played a Wizard of Oz literary game with us. She talked about why Bridgerton actually involves literary theory. So does Fifty Shades of Grey. Who knew? Um, and also, we just had on Jeffrey Weinstock, who wrote the first ever pop culture analysis book. So, you know, I am all things a lover of pop culture, especially my Hollywood topics, Real Housewives, the list goes on and on. And he also wrote the book called The Mad Scientist's Guide to Composition, where he's writing a book teaching students about how to write 
rhetorical strategies, but it's all around this metaphor of being in the mad scientist laboratory, because as you'll learn when you hear our episode with Jeffrey, he is a gothic and horror fanatic. And I mean that in all the best ways possible. So you don't want to miss Broadview Press's exclusive discount because you're listening to the podcast. All of you get an automatic 20% off. Use the code Ivory Tower for 20% off site-wide on all of their books. So our in our show notes, we have a link to Broadview Press. Make sure you click the link, put in Ivory Tower, and you're going to get 20% off your order. So enjoy your reading, everyone. So in a sense, the early 19th century drew me in because that felt where the work right, really kind of needed to be done. And once I really got into it and got um, figured out how to find the material, uh, it's just, you know, there's there's just a wealth. I'm, I'm a little bit sad that there's not more people working in the period because there are there's so much good material in the early 19th century. Um, the first book was the survey of the newspaper content um, and then tied into sort of um, analysis of how families reacted to sex between men because I had a large enough sample where I could project out into how mothers, sisters, brothers, um, other family members, um, in a, you know, sort of thought about it when someone got arrested. Um, and then, um, and then again, that sort of led to this kind of political story. I mean, I just, I got hints of, of it around the edges in the first book. And then it kind of turned into a bit of a historical detective story. My book has been called that by some people. I love that. I'll totally accept that. Um, because, you know, just like one person's name led to another, led to another. And the fact that the parliamentary papers have been so thoroughly digitized right now, um, and we have such wonderful biographies from the History of Parliament Project for every single member. And those biographies actually don't um, edit out the queer material like they used to. They've done a really excellent job of foregrounding that, which has helped me to sort of understand what's going on in the parliamentary process. I mean, they are still trying to hide this material. I mean, it's not, it wasn't easy to find in the newspapers. Um, they don't use keywords. They never say sodomy, um, for instance, but they, you know, you know what they're talking about. In, and in fact, um, the Palmer's index to the times was really useful because what that index did is people read every single story starting in about 1870, and they knew if it was a queer story. And so they would use sort of euphemistic labels to index it under. And once you figure out what their euphemisms are, it helps to guide you to all the best material. Um, and the parliamentary papers are similar in how people are not talking about sex between men, even when they're talking about it. And once you sort of figure out how to use those electronic sources, then um, then a whole world just opens up. And um, yeah, I had no idea that this political story was so big when I started this. It was just, it was kind of fun just to see how all the pieces came together. Yes, well, and I mean, there is now such a fascination. It's so interesting to me that you bring up, this is where academia and the public me i mean i'm as you know so invested in public scholarship i mean that's why we're here right now on a podcast and in the american culture the regency era the early 1800s is 
all the rage. Bridgerton is has become a cultural phenomenon, even though, right, we're it's historical revision, but it is yeah. standing for a certain cultural moment. And mm -hmm. I think what's so fascinating is you bring us right away in your intro, I'll just read it, but you say in the 19th century, sodomy was referred to as the worst of crimes. And it was described as something that no man would wish to be associated with in any way, lest his reputation be damaged for life. And yet, as early as 1835, only three years after the passage of the Great Reform Act of 1832, and two years after the legislated abolition of slavery in the British Empire, um, the elected representatives of the United Kingdom voted to end the death penalty for sodomy. I mean, this is so captivating as an opening. And first, I'm not going to read anymore because everyone has to get Chuck's book, Beyond the Law. Um, but I just love, though, that you bring us into right away this early history of the 1800s that British Empire had just ended, abolished slavery legally. Now they're trying to abolish the death penalty for sodomy. What went wrong, right? This is such a tease. And I love this tease because it speaks to that there was a libertine. There's a freedom of the culture. There's Lord Byron. I mean, talk about sexual, his fluidity of, right? We have no sexual category. So he is very fluid of how he just desires men, women. Um, and this existed though in a lot of, literary circles, artistic circles. So, um, I mean, I can ask you what went wrong, because, but that's the heart of your book. So I don't want you to have to detail everything, but why, why do you think the Regency era into, and just correct me, because, you know, I'm coming from, I know the Regency era, but it's not something I specialize on. What years are the Regency? And then like, when would you mark the Victorian, the early Victorian. Like, what's our time frame here for the audience, Chuck? Hmm. All right. Well, you know, um, I'll just jump back. First off, I'm glad you brought up Bridgerton also, too, right? Because it's very cool. I totally think academics should engage with popular audiences, right? And um, and uh, I was asked to comment on the queer potential for Benedict's storylines, right? The one sort of queer coded character. And um, so uh, I binge watched like two seasons, right? Just to make sure that I had all the pieces. And um, yeah, did the interview, uh, it came out in the express. It was a lot of fun. Um, and uh, yeah, I've, um, and I think that um, I've given a few lectures also to about the queer potential, right? For the storylines um, of, of Bennett um, in Bridgerton. I think what they've done in the show actually is quite good, right? Because Benedict first encounters, you know, sort of a queer situation. Um, at a party, right, with his artistic friend who is invites him after he sort of checks him out for a while. It's a safe space. It's kind of clandestine. And inside, there are all sorts of excesses, right, both uh, heterosexual and homosexual, right? Um, uh, and it's all sorts of sort of sensual experiences. And one of the things that I found is, at least within upper class culture, um, all of the arguments that are being made, and there are arguments that are being made about why we should end the death penalty for sodomy, um, well, many of them are coming from the perspective of what we would think of as almost bisexuality, right? Um, that or, gender, or fluidity, right? That um, this should not be, that some people, they say some people have this um, feeling inborn, right? 
Um, it is written in our character since birth, as if in sympathetic ink. I love this metaphor. That's a term for invisible ink. And it only becomes visible over time and through experience, right? So the idea that same-sex desire can be written in your character from birth, and you only realize it gradually as time goes by. But it's assumed that these individuals probably also feel desire for women as well. Um, there's, um, at least in the, in the arguments that survived in print that were meant to sort of shape debates, um, you often find this. In fact, there is, um, Byron's story is used in this in order to create an argument for why all men have a stake in ending the, um, the sodomy law, right? The, as the argument goes that, um, let's, uh, that, Marriage is a sacrament, right? And what two people choose to do in the sacramental space of their own marriage to preserve their sexual interest in, in each other, that's their business. And the state has no right to intrude into the marital bedchamber, right? Um, the sodomy law is based on a church prohibition, right? Which is of a lower order of importance to the church um, than a sacrament. And the, the state didn't even really have any right to usurp the church's right to enforce this. Um, I have one individual calling the sodomy law a political stink trap developed by Henry VIII um, that really should have never been a law in the first place, right? So that, um, so that in fact, every man has a stake in getting rid of this because it infringes on every man's right to do what he wants, what, uh, what a husband and wife choose to do in their own bedchamber. Um, and so that argument really surprised me, right, to find that being made in the context of this not on the floor of the House of Commons, but in an ancillary sort of argument. So, so this idea of kind of, um, you know, the category is definitely not rigid by that point, you know, and these arguments for um, same-sex desire and opposite-sex desire in the same individual. Also, too, really huge in this, Jeremy Bentham is incredibly important um, because he actually um, published his arguments about why we should get rid of the death penalty for sodomy. In fact, why we should get rid of the sodomy law in general. And this is something that I do think is one of the finds of my book. Um, it predates the Regency era, right? Um, you know, which roughly around the 1820s, right? Um, and predates that um, because it was first published in um, 1789. It, now, people have remembered, right? Lewis Crompton discovered 70 manuscript pages where um, Jeremy Bentham argued against the sodomy law. But Crompton took um, Bentham's notes saying that he's going to keep this secret or else he's gonna ruin his reputation for life, right? Crom um, Bentham left these notes and Crompton repeated that. But the thing is he didn't keep it secret. If you read his most prominent work of legal reform, right? Um, the Principles on Morals and Legislation, the book that really helped to shape the Napoleonic Code and so many other law codes, Five paragraphs in that 300-page work argue explicitly why there is no rational basis for a law punishing sex between men, let alone a death penalty for it. So any legal reformer who read Bentham's work, and absolutely everybody did, knew that Jeremy Bentham was against this. So we've made a big deal about um, Blackstone, right? And Blackstone sort of um, arguing that we should have the sodomy law. But what's totally dropped out of the conversation is that, again, every legal scholar and most people who are shaping law reform in parliament knew that um, Jeremy Bentham argued this if they read his book carefully, 
right? And so that's one of the things that I'm trying to bring back into the conversation to say that, um, you know, it wasn't so one-sided as we thought, right? The people who yelled the loudest were the evangelicals who wanted to keep the death penalty for sodomy. But it would be like judging, you know, the opinion of the 1980s based solely on Jerry Falwell, right? Or, um, you know, or, or those much more sort of loud vocal voices. You know, there's a, there's a greater diversity. There is two sides to this argument in the 19th century. Um, there's a lot of opinion that just says that you don't, oh, last bit, and then, but there's just this. Oh, God, yes, yes. Keep going. Um, okay, um, but just this one point about how you don't need modern homosexual identity to have an ethical problem for with executing someone for a private consensual act, right? Yes. That's just wrong. You don't need gay identity for that. Um, and, you know, to have an issue with that. And, you know, for reasons that were somewhat like unexpected, unintentional, the death penalty for sodomy gets on the agenda um, in the 1830s. And so there are a lot of people who would rather not have dealt with it, but now they kind of have to. And I can talk more about why that's the case if you want, but I should let you in. I feel like I've talked too much right now. No, no, this is wonderful. I mean, yeah, we'll definitely pick that back up. I think, though, you know, you're coming from historically trained background. I'm from a literary trained background. I think we do intersect, right? You interpret literary texts. I'm interested in cultural history. See, literary and historical people can get along. Uh, it can happen, everyone. But um, and I think there's more of an intersection than, you know, we, I think it's starting to intersect a lot now as disciplines. But Something that interests me is just even the word sodomy, Chuck. Like we're, right, the biblical illusion of Sodom and Gomorrah, the unnatural acts that happen in the Old Testament with those who are there. And apparently they were indulging in all of these libidinal desires and it became bacchanalian. It kind of does have a tie to those ancient Greek Dionysian festivals in a way. I feel like a lot of this is all kind of in tied together with this illusion, but where does even, how did sodomy even get defined from what you're invest, what you're looking into? I mean, you're looking into male same-sex desire. Is that the case that mostly men were being uh, subjected to sodomy, even though it meant just unnatural sexual acts? Was it more applied to same-sex acts in right. this case? Hi, this is Andrew. So as some of you might know, I've been such a fan of the Gay and Lesbian Review bi-monthly magazine of history, culture, and politics that publishes essays in a wide range of disciplines, as well as a slew of reviews of books, plays, and movies, and a number of special features, such as artist profiles and the popular art memo column, did you know we actually had two of the writers on the Ivory Tower Boiler Room podcast, Ignacio Darnad and Vernon Rosario? So if you haven't, make sure you listen to those episodes. Each GNLR issue brings you consistently intelligent, lively, thought-provoking articles focused on a unifying theme and brings together the leading minds on the topic. You won't find a lot about the latest dating fads or fashion trends, Though you might find articles about online dating as a social phenomenon, like Grindr, which I have some experience with, or the gay influence on 20th century fashion. Now, 
for a special offer. When you subscribe to the GNLR, you'll receive a free copy with any print or digital subscription. That's seven instead of six. Visit glreview.org. That's G-L-R-E-V-I-E-W.org. Click subscribe and enter promo code ITBR for your free issue. And as an added bonus, you'll receive online access to all archived issues of the magazine. Enjoy your reading. Um, yeah, the law is almost always applied um, to men having sex with men. And it's attempted sodomy and indecent assault, which are the kind of ones that are most prominent um, you know, in the legal records, where I got most of the evidence for, um, certainly for before Wild. Um, but one of the interesting things is that people like Bentham are aware of the power of words, right? We tend to associate that with modern, postmodernism, post-structuralism, you know, finding out what categories did they have, what words did they use. Um, Bentham realizes he, um, that he doesn't want to use the word sodomy. Um, in fact, he creates a new term called the attic taste to be a neutral term to discuss an interest in, you know, Greek love, right? So, um, and he attempts to, you know, establish that word, the attic taste. Um, and he has this, this wonder, and also too, there's another big part. This makes me think of his two-part work, not Paul, but Jesus, right? If the principles of morals and legislation had five paragraphs, you know, out of a 300-page work that argued against it, and that 300-page work is about what the law should cover overall, everything. So it stands to reason that only five paragraphs, you know, out of a 300 page work would deal with that if it's about reforming the legal code in its entirety. Um, okay, but um, he actually, as the executions for sodomy go up in the early 19th century to really unprecedented levels, he decides that he needs to be more forceful. So he, um, he writes a two volume work, not Paul, but Jesus, um, that is about trying to change political minds and attitudes. Now, part one, um, is where he argues, as the title implies, that um, the problem that Christianity has with pleasure doesn't come from Jesus. Everything in the teachings of Jesus are, is co totally compatible with the appreciation of pleasure. It's only St. Paul who had um, denial of pleasure, <coughs> excuse me, as a, as a, you know, sort of a, something that had religious value and significance. So step one, is to separate out the religion of Jesus from the religion of Paul, right? Because nothing gets through Parliament if it's anti-Christian in this period. So, but a more pure version of Christianity, he says, he says, you know, we've got rid of the witchcraft laws, we've got rid of the later editions in a lot of places. Now let's get rid of this. Mm -hmm. Now, once that's happened, part two was arguing against all of the laws against pleasure. And whole chapters of this new work were about getting rid of the sodomy laws, or as he said, laws against the attic taste. So, so he had this two-part plan, um, and he actually approaches William Beckford to be the sponsor, because he knows this is going to be controversial. William Beckford, speaking of literary people, right, um, 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 let's see, um, is, is a novelist, he's a poet, he was um, the builder of Font Hill Abbey, he still sat in Parliament for with a Rottenborough seat that he had purchased. Um, his family had made a fortune on the slave trade, and he was using that wealth, right, to um, to purchase. Well, you know, 
this privilege that he had. And so Bentham asks him if he will recreate a, um, a more um, popular argument, right? Maybe his maybe Bentham felt his well. Bentham says he thinks that his philosophical arguments might not reach everybody. But Beckford knew all about the ancient world, um, all of the examples of all sorts of sexual desires that were accepted in the ancient world. So he asks him to write a sort of a companion piece to Not Paul but Jesus Part Two that would grab a more popular audience. And um, basically, what I found in the Beckford papers is that what we think of as the poem Don Leon significant sections of that are tied into this project. So um, so yeah, there's, and that was a privately circulated poem that argued against the death penalty for sodomy that, um, you know, literary scholars have been trying to speculate over who might have written it for decades. And um, um, Beckford has never been put forward as a possible author, but um, because nobody was really trying to follow the political story. I mean, I found the invitation from Bentham asking Beckford. And then actually, if you take Don Leon and go to Beckford's papers, all of the newspaper stories, well, many of the newspaper stories and the footnotes of the Don Leon poem um, are actually in Beckford's clipping collection um, in, the, um, in the Bodleian Library. So there's this, you know, highly, you know, I can't say for sure that he wrote it, but, you know, maybe someone with access to his papers did, you know, he certainly could have, he he was obsessed with Byron, um, and the poem is written as if it was in the voice of Byron. So anyway, there's there's all sorts of sort of intersections between um, reaching a popular audience, um, literary works, political works, philosophical works, and, and moral works that are all intersecting in this. It's, it's a political movement, and they're trying to attract multiple coalitions so that they can get a bill passed through Parliament. And I love that you set the stage for so much more work to come. In my opinion, I feel like you've created such a definitive. I'll I'll be the tastemaker here, of, <laughs> uh, because I can of what now is setting the stage for current uh, queer history. But I do. There's so much more to these narratives that even in literary studies we don't have as much discussions about Bentham or even. His friend, who I actually work on in my um, Whitman writing, it's hopefully, you know, I'm done my dissertation soon. Hopefully I find a publisher because um, I talk about Frances Wright and she was, you know, Scottish, but she's a novelist. She's a philosopher. Um, I'm not sure. How much do you do you mention Frances Wright? I'm trying to remember in your book, Chuck. You know, she she doesn't come up. Um, in fact, it's um, Isabella Kelly is the female novelist that is the one that really kind of mm -hmm. I focus on more than any other, just because, I mean, her writing, she's very much enmeshed in this group of individuals and plays a really kind of critical part in, you know, helping to secure, um, you know, the um, ability of Fitzroy Kelly to finish school. Um, you know, she has a strong relationship also, too, with Matthew Gregory Lewis. Um, and, um, so yeah. And so, so, yeah, no, I just, I bring up Francis, right. She's a little earlier too. Like her work really comes out 1810s if I'm remembering the timeline, but she wrote a book called a few days in Athens that I'm trying to bring back to print because it's very hard to find copies. Um, but I mentioned that because it's so similar to what you're saying with, uh, Jeremy Bentham is A Few Days in Athens is this historical fiction novel that Whitman 
attends Frances Wright's lecture. Later in her lecturing career, she comes to Brooklyn and he finds this novel in the library. And this is the kind of history that I bring, which is Whitman's influence of Frances Wright's fictionalizing account of what happened in ancient Greek symposiums. And it's this whole really interesting dialogue with Epicurus and the discussion of pleasure and, um, you know, where does pleasure come from? What's too hedonist, hedonistic or not? But there's all this male same-sex desire elements. And it's so fascinating because it does seem like what you've found with um, Bentham and with others is kind of walking this tightrope because with Frances Wright, she still is a little more in this hedonistic reign, which I think Whitman... Obviously, he loves the phallic discussions. Um, and I'm not going to, you know, I'm not going to open up the record too much because I have to hold suspense for when my book comes out, Chuck. But uh, um, that, you know, we have the Marquis de Sade, of course. Um, and we have, which is earlier, right? Late 1700s. Um, we have the whole Libertine, the decadent movement and, that hedonistic pleasure, even maybe John Cleland's memoirs of a woman of pleasure follows that um, pornographic type of writing. So how did you find the tightrope walk? Did you see there was a tightrope between being too decadent with the argument, like not coming off as too libertine or too hedonistic when trying to fight to end the death penalty? Because I feel like that would be a real... Um, a real tough case to not come off that you're in too excess of sexual pleasure. Right. Yeah. And that's interesting because yeah, a lot of people have sort of focused on the more hedonistic, you know, arguments that are very much, you know, at the time, but Byron Shelley and, you know, and, and as well. And I mean, I think it's interesting what I've tapped into is a liberal, you know, sort of argument that mm. is um, much more kind of about, um, this just doesn't make rational sense to do this. Um, and um, because I, um, and, and it's, it's about trying to craft arguments that will bring together enough votes to get something through the House of Commons, right? And so, um, I mean, the number of Christian arguments, why it is more Christian to get rid of the death penalty for sodomy than to keep it, why the sodomy law might actually you know, be, you know, not a good thing for a Christian country to have. I mean, mm. those are the ones that really surprised me because they're they're not made from a sort of a hedonistic decadent sort of a place. They're made from a they're made from a latitudinarian Christian place. They're made from a rationalist place. Um, they're made from a utilitarian place. And so, you know, and I feel like that that's a strand that just hasn't really been in our conversation yet. Again, we we've missed that, you know, that this was in Bentham's published work. It was hard to find. I mean, actually, I didn't go looking for it until I was sort of backtracking. Um, I had identified a person, um, John Austin, who was placed on a committee at a crucial moment in 1835 to review everything that um, had the death penalty and if it really should remain having the death penalty. Um, this was right after the last two men executed for sodomy. Their trial came up. That this that very much ties into my story um, in a, in a sort of a complicated way. Um, their case was very unusual, um, and and um, Lord John Russell 
puts John Austin, creates this committee to, um, or takes a committee that had been just sort of looking at the law more systematically and gives them a charge and no, we wanna know about the death penalty stuff right now, in part because of what had just happened with, um, with those executions of the last two men for sodomy, Pratt and Smith. Um, and I thought if, it, at this point, I still was believing what Crompton had said, that um, Bentham had kept all of his ideas secret. And so I thought, well, if he had shared his ideas with anybody, it would have been with John Austin. Um, and so I started going to try and find John Austin's papers to see if they were all destroyed during the war, right? Um, Inner Temple Library was where they were, where they were and they're gone. Um, but the only stuff that they had left, they, they did have his copy of Principles of Morals and Legislation. So I, I called it up. And in fact, these I first found these five passages by just flipping through his book and following his underlines, right? I mean, he, yes, I mean, and what, so, and then that, you know, helped me to sort of look for the right passages. And once I knew what the text of the passages were, I could find other people referencing them. So that whole idea of the sort of the detective work, one thing leads to another, you know, finding John Austin led to this thing in Bentham. And then it led me to finding other people referencing these same Bentham passages. Um, yeah, it just kind of, it snowballed in interesting ways. But but yeah, so to answer your question definitively, it's it's the sort of moderate liberal discourse against the sodomy law that I think is my real contribution. Um, and, and yeah, and as far as more avenues to explore, absolutely. In some ways, I just, I had to cut so much, mm -hmm. you know, um, for this book and just follow this one story um, because there was so much to tell. Um, there's there, there, there are a dozen more good books that could be written on queer history in the early 19th century. Um, you know, I'm going to do them if nobody else does as many as I can, but I hope, I hope others will get more interested in this period. Although I should say, shout out, Jen Mannion's Female Husbands is amazing, right? She has done such good work with that book. Mm -hmm. um, thinking about um, female husbands as trans history, you know, taking that term female husbands that they coined in really the mid from the mid 18th century forward, it is prominent within the culture. And looking at what that term meant, how people used it, how people identified themselves with it, how individuals lived their lives, thinking about um, gender as performative. I think it's the best historical application of this idea that gender is performative and not biological, right? Because she looks at how the longer an individual lived, right, within a gender, the more community support they often got, even when their biological gender was found out or their biological sex was found out. Yeah. Um, and it's just, it's a wonderful way that's very sensitive to what they thought in the period, the text that they had in the period. So yeah, they're, they're, there's she's a phenomenal person also kind of doing really interesting work before this sort of late 19th century moment. Um, there are others as well too, but um, yeah, I just, I, I, I'm really hoping that this field will become, more, uh, this will become a more prominent part of queer history in general, because I think that we have a lot of stories that we can tell in this earlier period. Yeah, well, I'm going to coin you the sodomitical sleuth, Chuck. That is now, <laughs> I was trying to think of a good alliteration, um, but it works. I was going to say the sodomitical Sherlock Holmes. Uh, All right. But, All right. You know, whichever you want to take. Um, but, uh, and I think what I, we, I've talked about um, whenever it comes to the 19th century, queer history, uh, Michelle Foucault's name usually comes up. 
Um, but something that I've found is because your work and the American audience who hears what I'm about to say right now might roll their eyes, which is fine, but I'm going to say it anyway, which is, it is really interesting to me because what you're def identifying as this utilitarian, um, this utilitarian argument philosophically to argue against the death penalty for sodomy is similar to arguments that happen with libertarian parties in America in the sense of, it's about my body, my privacy, not having the government involved. Um, and there is almost, there's a through line in a way. I mean, that's actually their argument for same-sex marriage is, well, if I remember correctly, I'm not sure. I don't want to misquote. I forgot what exactly their stance is, but I do know that it's about privacy in the bedroom. Like they're all about, like you're saying, it was an argument for keep the government out of our bed. Um, mm -hmm. I think that's a really interesting um, how these reverberations happen in history, that we still mm -hmm. have strands of these types of arguments, even though they come in different names and forms. Um, yeah. Something, though, I do want to address is... Um, you do not have to, uh, I know Naomi Wolf, who um, haven't read up a lot about what's happening with Naomi Wolf, but all I know is there was a lot, <laughs> Chuck, um, you know, I don't want to have you, Chuck, or I, we're not going to, um, you know, critique, critique thoroughly um, her work, but it was very it caused a lot of um, waves in queer literary, queer history circles when I think it's called Outrages is her book. Right. Okay. And I know that you read it and responded to it, I'm pretty sure. Um, but I find that what you're doing with your work is showing that it's very different. Like she was, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, but she was trying to prove that the death penalty was being used to persecute men who are having sex with men, that there was actually this whole record of men being executed that we didn't know about in the mid to late 1800s. So like, here's your chance, Chuck, what you've gone thoroughly through the archive, you know, what was, what was really going on here in terms of the death penalty, right? It's on the books, but it being used and persecuting men for sodomy. LGBT stories are universal, but each one speaks to the individual heart and soul of the writer telling it. Do you have a story to tell? Have you been moved by an LGBT book, film, painting, television show, or other form of media? If so, the Gay and Lesbian Review wants to hear from you. The GNLR believes in bringing awareness to queer art and artists through reviews, commentary, and thought pieces in which the author relates their personal lives to a particular piece of art, a novel, a movie, or what have you. In addition to the articles published in the print magazine, the GNLR also publishes articles on its blog, as well as personal essays on its popular Here's My Story section. This allows people like you to share their own experiences with our readers. To learn more about submitting either to the print or the online edition of the GNLR, visit georeview.org. That's G-L-R-E-V-I-E-W 
www.ohrg and scroll down to the bottom of the page to find a link to their writer's guidelines. If you have questions, email me at stephen.hemrick at georeview.org. The GNLR can't wait to see what you have to say. Hey, Ivory Tower Boiler Room listeners and true crime friends. You've heard me gush over this incredible woman and her beautiful products. I'm talking about Mandy Made It. Mandy makes customized and original crochet and cre-cut goods. They are the perfect, unique, one-of-a-kind gift for literally anyone in your life. And she makes incredible home decor. I still have my pumpkins that I put out every fall. I just love them. Check her out on Instagram at M-A-N-D-E-E Made It or search Mandy Made It on Facebook. To order, just slide into her DMs. And if you mention the Ivory Tower Boiler Room, you will receive a free personalized gift with your first order. So go on Instagram and look up at Mandy Made It and Mandy is spelled M-A-N-D-E-E. Again, her handle is at Mandy Made It, Mandy spelled M-A-N-D-E-E, and order today. Right. Um, yeah, I mean, the the consensus in the field has been for a very long time, you know, and it's true, right? There's no more executions after 1835. Um, unfortunately, um, you know, um, Naomi sort of misread that aspect, um, you know, of the legal records. Um, and, you know, that that caused significant problems, right, um, for a book. Um, she did ask me to, to read the work. I did read it. I gave a long report to the press. By that point, it had been withdrawn. So I kind of like, you know, just gave the report to the press and to her. I tried to treat it like an academic peer review thing so that they could decide if they wanted to re-release or not. So and we sort of left it at that. Um, and I think that, um, so if we want to think about what's happening overall, um, there are, um, yeah, there's, there's a spike of executions in the first two decades of the 19th century, more than there ever really have been before. Um, and the overarching thing that's happening, though, is that um, once we hit, there, there's, a, there's a real sense that the death penalty has been used too much across the board. This is the this is what puts um, the end of the death penalty for sodomy on the agenda in the 1830s, okay? Because um, before, in the 18th century, there is nothing uniquely st stigmatizing about having the death penalty for something because in the 18th century, there is no police force to speak of and there is no prison system, right? Every felon, a felony gets you the death penalty, right? Um, Stealing um, something off of a person that has the value of the equivalent of about 50 pounds in today's money would get you the death penalty, right? Picking someone's pocket um, because um, the chance that you would get caught is so slight because there's no um, systematic police force. Um, the chance that you would actually be successfully prosecuted was slight because the judicial procedures were so underdeveloped. This was also an area that Bentham got involved in. Mm -hmm. um, and there was no prison system. They, you might get transported as a substitute for execution, but there was no, there was nothing for long-term incarceration in Britain. People realize that if we want to get rid of the death penalty, 
um, for things, then we have to build a systematic police force and a systematic system of imprisonment. That, that's the only way to do it. Um, because the other problem with the existing system is that the number of capital crimes mushroomed in the 18th century. Judges would um, use judicial mercy to um, commute sentences, often to sentences of transportation. Um, but it made the law seem so arbitrary. Some people would get something extreme. Some people, you know, um, you know, would get something far less. There was, um, to someone like Bentham or people who are sympathetic to Bentham, the irregularity of the system was so galling, so much power in the hands of judges. But that's, of course, what a Tory would want, right? Because that's a chance to do upper-class paternalism, right? To act benevolently to sort of create that social cohesion, right? If the judge grants you mercy or not. Um, so that, but for a utilitarian, that's way too arbitrary. So they, and Bentham is extremely influential throughout all of the legal reform process. Um, and, um, you know, most people follow his ideas. So they create a systematic um, means of policing and a systematic means of imprisonment. And once they have that in place, um, then um, when the Whigs come to power in 1830, they start radically reducing the number of crimes that get you the death penalty. Um, and Peel had done this a bit in 1825. The, um, there's a bit of my story that plays out in 1825. Um, but, um, but throughout the 1830s, the death penalty is be being reduced. There had been over 200 capital crimes at the start of the 19th century. Um, by the time you get to the mid 1830s, you only have the death penalty left for about 14 crimes, which are versions of murder, treason, extreme violence, or what is often a private consensual act, sometimes between people who care about each other, right? I.e. sodomy, right? Um, and, um, and also um, still executions for rape as well too. And so there is this movement to say that we have to change this, right? Um, that even though we don't want to talk about sodomy, that the kind of, it's more glaring, right? Now that it's only the most extreme cases, right? You know, um, it just, it, the, the, the moral conundrum, if you have a moral problem with executing people for a private consensual act, which is what Pratt and Fisk were involved in, and you've got to, you've got to sort of really pay attention to the individual sodomy cases, um, because if they were with violence, then that was a form of rape. And then Bentham was like, yes, then execution, until we get rid of all executions, that's not such an anomaly. But it was the ones that were private and consensual that were, you know, that people were paying attention to. Um, and, 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 and realizing that this is what we sort of have to shift. So, um, so that, yeah. um, that's, you know, that's, that's really, that's what turns it into a moral crisis. Um, and even when, um, you know, through a process that I describe in the book, you know, 1835 is the last execution that happens. They still want to get it off the books, right? Because it's about the judges commuting the sentences, right? Death recorded, um, and um, which they can do for multiple things, of course, not just sodomy. But um, but that that process is often sort of used. Um, I've got several scholars kind of describing it as a um, as a way to you know. Um, fix the problem until the law catches up with the morals of the time, 
right? That there is a feeling amongst many people. Um, I've got one judge who said, I am thoroughly convinced that the only reason why we still have the death penalty for sodomy is the lack of anyone hardy enough to take up a cause that might make them seem like they were a supporter of the act, right? Mm -hmm. um, who's going to be the person who stands up and is brave enough, even if many people, I know Lord John Russell wants to get rid of the death penalty for sodomy. When it comes up for the vote, almost everybody votes for it if it can be done quietly, right? Um, and it passes the commons on six separate votes. Um, but still, who is going to be the guy that stands up and like risks his reputation? Who is the one who's going to really stick their neck out to make this happen? That's the big question. And that's where Fitzroy Kelly and Stephen Lushington, but especially Fitzroy Kelly, right, stand out because he fights for this in a way that other people, one other person put it forward, but dropped it as soon as there was resistance. But Fitzroy Kelly fights for it because he's fighting for his family, right? Um, he's fighting for someone he cares about as well as for a principal. And I think that we need to incorporate family and our understandings in that way. My advisor, John Gillis, right, built a lot of his career around analyzing the family. Um, wonderful, amazing scholar um, and who passed away just recently, um, unfortunately, right? A great loss to us all. But, um, but yeah, he really got me early on in my graduate career thinking about family, right? If the courtroom is one space for adjudicating these cases, the family is another, right? Families work out what to do with their queer sons, right? Or with their with their member who is caught having sex with another man, right? It's not the yeah. worst of crimes within a family. Families can't throw away a family member, right? And because they are morally indignant, right? They're never happy about these relationships usually, but um, but you know they they work out accommodations. And so thinking about the family as a locus for where meaning is created about what sex between men means and how you know, how it can be dealt with um, is something that's been in my work from the start, in part because I was a student of John Gillis. And I think it's something that is a perspective that I think has been invaluable to me and that I hope I can convince other people, you know, that needs to be foregrounded. Although, of course, Matt Cook is doing wonderful work on queer families in the late 19th and early 20th century and other scholars as well, too. Yeah, no, thank you, Chuck. And I'm glad that thank you for addressing, you know, just setting the record I was going to say straight, but I don't want any more. <laughs> we don't need puns with, you know, straightness. But, um, you know, no offense against. I love my straight community. But uh, it was just an easy one to do. Um, but I love how you're just explaining about getting these laws off the, getting the laws off the book. And in this case, it's the sodomy law. Um, do you have like another um, 10 minutes? Is that okay? Yes, totally. And okay. Well, so for that, thank you, Chuck. Well, for everyone out there, um, we have a subscriber section called the Ivory Tower Boiler Room Cafe, which is a Patreon. So it's five dollars a month. Um, and I thought, you know what? Why don't I hold some of the more salacious discussion for our subscribers, Chuck? Because you know, if they want to hear more open erotic discussions, that's where they need to go. So I'm going to meet everyone over there on our subscriber page and continue this discussion with Chuck. So we can get into more of these non-procreative sexual acts and what is going on and what surprised Chuck the most when reading through these um, narratives. Okay, so see you all over there. <laughs> Thank you.
Thank you so much for listening to the Ivory Tower Boiler Room. This is Andrew Rimby. I really hope you follow us on social media because that's where you get to see all of the exciting video clips, teasers, and humorous moments. So follow us on TikTok and Instagram at Ivory Tower Boiler Room and on our Twitter at Ivory Boiler Room. I hope you all are following the Ivory Tower Boiler Room Cafe and become a member for only $5. You get all of our interviews and episodes ad-free. You also get to watch the video interviews. You get to see my lovely face and the guest's lovely face. And you get access to all the bonus episodes. So Dr. Jake Newsom talking about the history of the Pink Triangle, Zach Topping talking about being an army vet and what that meant when he wrote a war novel and a dystopian novel. You get to hear Gregory Maguire's breaking news about the Wicked movie musical, Jesse Green talking about Richard Rogers and Oscar Hammerstein and what did Stephen Sondheim actually think about Rogers and Hammerstein. So head to patreon.com slash ivory tower boiler room. Please, please provide me an iced coffee. I would love it because I need to stay up to do all these edits. So yeah, see you all in the Ivory Tower Boiler Room Cafe. And here is Mary DePippi from True Crime and Academia. Hi, everyone. I am Mary DePippi. As Andrew said, I am the host of True Crime and Academia. True Crime and Academia airs on Fridays at 730. Now to find all things True Crime and Academia, you can follow me on Instagram and TikTok at True Crime and Academia or on Twitter at TC and Academia because, well, they hate it when you have too many characters. Like I said, True Crime and Academia airs on Fridays at 730s. But if you are a subscriber, you get a bonus episode. That's right. A whole episode just to yourselves that no one else gets to hear. Like... I do a deep dive on the case of Jean Benet Ramsey. I deep dive Casey Anthony. We talk about the history of the lobotomy. And most recently, we talked about the Night Stalker himself, Richard Ramirez. So if you want to access all of that extra wonderful content, go to patreon.com slash ivory tower boiler room. And like Andrew said, if you could just please buy us a nice coffee, that would that would be great. That would be really, really yes, great. It would be great. We appreciate it. We also interact with all of you on Patreon. So ask us your insightful questions. We will answer them for you. And we want to thank our spring 23 interns, Andrea, Caitlin, Rosie, and Sheila. Thank you so much. And we can't wait to see you all back again in the ivory tower boiler room. Happy winter, everyone. <laughs>